everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. We're good. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. Um, we're going to talk about batteries, uh, how to uh, live comfortably, live well without with a good battery system. Uh, Stop climate change with living energy is the title. Uh, we've learned a lot about nickel iron batteries at Living Energy Farm, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and we're going to talk about it at the end of the presentation. Uh, we didn't intend Living Energy Farm to be a technology, technology development center in the beginning, but we have become that. Uh, we've had to figure out a lot of things on our own. You can't go to a big box store and buy all the tools that we need. And I learned a while ago about some ideas about how to run uh, power tools directly off of solar panels. And of course, my to-do list is really quite long and only got to it in the last week of doing experiments and it worked out amazingly well. So at the end of the presentation, we're going to have a minor diversion and show you how to run uh, old-fashioned power, uh, circular saws, drills, anything, uh, any of those home power tools. We'll show you how to run them straight off the solar panels. But let's start talking about batteries. Um, so when we talked about the high-voltage DC last week, uh, the uh, daylight drive system that we use, we put a warning in there that high-voltage DC is... Uh, more lethal or more dangerous potentially than high voltage AC electricity. You don't want to mess around with it. Uh, in building code, at least in this part of the world, 48 volts is the difference between high voltage and low voltage. Anything above 48 is considered dangerous. Anything below 48 is considered uh, not so dangerous, although I actually know a person who was killed by a 48 volt wire, but that's quite unusual. Certainly when you're dealing with battery voltages in the 12 to 24 volt range, there's no particular danger, to, uh, danger, danger of electrocution or serious shock, but batteries have the capacity to generate tremendous am, uh, amperage. Uh, and amperage is what heats wires up. Uh, so while batteries are not gonna electrocute you unless you put a whole lot of them in series and get a high voltage, they can melt wires very quickly. Uh, they can make a lot of sparks. Uh, they can burn your house down if they're not set up properly. So if you don't have any experience with this, you don't know what you're doing, uh, then please, you're taking your own risk. Um, uh, I strongly recommend with any battery set, at the very least, put a fuse on it. Uh, what is even better than a fuse is a DC breaker system. This picture I have on my screen is a set of DC breakers from, I think they're from Midnight Solar, if I remember correctly. But a lot of the solar companies have DC breakers. And they're not the same as AC breakers. They're going to be more sensitive and more accurate than a simple fuse. But just beware, you can't be hooking up small wires to batteries without some fusing. The fusing of the breakers needs to match the size of the wiring. And somebody who knows what they're doing needs to help you figure that out if you don't understand it yourself so you don't uh, get a bunch of sparks and burn your house down. All right, <clears throat> so let's go through and talk about standard uh, off-grid design. Uh, what I have in, uh, up on the screen now is a, a worksheet from uh, Northern, Northern Arizona Wind and Sun. They're a good company out in Arizona, surprisingly. Um, we've ordered equipment from them. They have good information. Um, off-grid solar has uh, become an extremely rare thing. A lot of people are doing grid tie now, uh, specifically because of bad batteries. That's the biggest reason. Um, but we're gonna walk through kind of the design process and, and see how, how it is people get led down a rabbit hole instead of making intelligent uh, design decisions. Uh, so this is a simple list of a bunch of appliances you might have in your house. 
I just pulled this off their website. Uh, so if you were trying to design an off-grid system, they would refer you to this worksheet. You're supposed to go on this worksheet and decide, well, this is what I gotta have. Well, there's a well pump, I gotta have that. Well, I gotta have my coffee maker, but maybe I can give up the toaster, whatever. Now this is all by watts. Watts are fairly easily uh, converted into amps and you add a time component under that to get amp hours. Um, those are all simple mathematical equations. So you look at this timesheet, you check off all the things you feel like you gotta have. Uh, this is also from Northern Arizona Wind and Sun. So from that previous uh, sheet, you write down your appliance, how many of those you have and the wattage. Uh, you fill out this whole sheet and they give you your total uh, power demand. Uh, then uh, you have an idea of how big your system's supposed to be. In most cases, the system turns out to be way bigger than you thought. So you go back and say, hey, what's going on? And I'll tell you, well, you got to trim it down. You know, maybe you can uh, get rid of that coffee maker, get rid of the toaster or something. Otherwise, you're going to have a really big, expensive system. So you try to trim it down some. Uh, most systems end up with a thousand amp hours in a ordinary, that, that's a fairly modest system. Uh, a lot of systems end up with bigger numbers than that. So then they sell a lot of kits. Northern Arizona sells kits. A lot of other companies sell, kit, sell kits as well. Um, <clears throat> these are the kits from Northern Arizona Wind and Sun. Now these are simply the electrical, the, the PV panels, charge controllers, inverters, uh, that side of the kit. These uh, kit prices do not include the batteries, which is a big expense, or the solar panel that fits on your roof because the, the rack that goes on the roof has to be customized or has to match the roof, you know, the pitch of your roof or whatever. And uh, so the, the solar rack itself is not really expensive, but the batteries are quite expensive. Uh, so these solar kits, uh, these are considered ordinary residential solar kits. This is just the first page I pulled up. They start at $5,000. Uh, that's a fair chunk of money. And these are not huge kits. These are kind of, again, kind of small and residential kits. And this is not including shipping and not including batteries. So that's your next step. You figured out how much power you need, figured out what kit size you need. Okay, so I'm gonna pick one kit or the other. Then you go to the big bugaboo, the batteries. Um, again, this is simply the first page off the Northern Arizona site. You come here and start trying to figure out batteries. Um, from those previous uh, sheets, you got an amp hour equation and maybe you consulted with the people at the company that's selling you the equipment. Uh, and these batteries are rated by amp hour. Now that is a specific mathematical equation. We're gonna talk a little bit more about what that mathematical equation means, but let's just take the first battery on the list there. Uh, that's a 250 amp hour battery, but it's only six volt. So you gotta pair them up to get 12 volts. If you wanted a decent system, like I said, most people aim for a thousand amp hours. A lot of people go quite a bit bigger than that. So that would be eight batteries at a 12 volt system. That would be uh, $2,700, $2,696. Now that doesn't include shipping. So you're gonna add maybe 50% under the cost of these batteries to ship them because they're big, heavy lead things. Um, now, of course, if you want a 24 volt system, that's gonna work a whole lot better. That would be $5,392 plus shipping, which, you know, you can easily get up, you know, seven, eight, $10,000 putting in what, uh, just for the batteries, uh, putting in what most people consider a decent system. Then you got five, six, $7,000 for the, the electronic crap. Uh, you pay the installer, you're up in a few, you know, $20,000, $30,000. Some of these systems can get quite expensive depending on um, what you're doing, uh, how big of a system you want. Uh, so battery degradation, this is the bugger. Um, most of these lead acid batteries, they're in serious decline after five years. Certainly six, seven years, they're just, they're not doing much. 
It depends. Sometimes you get lucky. I once saw a lead acid battery go nine years. It's the only one I've ever seen. I've seen friends of mine spend, I saw one friend of mine spend $3,300 on a solar battery set and the thing died completely in three years. Um, so anyway, if we take these two systems, uh, the first 12 volt system, not including battery shipping costs, your degradation is probably about $540 a year. 24 volt system, you're looking at maybe $1,000 a year battery degradation. And these numbers are probably about 50% low, again, because we're not counting shipping costs. I don't want to hassle these folks to figure out all the shipping on this stuff, just for an example. But um, that's this is really the reason that, uh, that there is no off-grid movement. Uh, these battery degradation costs just wipe people out. <clears throat> and of course, when you're buying the system, they don't, they're not going to tell you all this. They're going to say, oh, yeah, those batteries, they'll last 8, 10, 12 years. Uh, they're not. They don't. They never do. Um, uh, particularly if they're neglected, you might only get three out of them. But even if they're well taken care of, you're not going 10 or 12 years. Not going to happen. Uh, so, you know, you buy, let's say, a $6,000 battery set. Five years later, that thing is nosediving. You can't keep your equipment alive. And you go back and it's like, oh, my God, another $6,000 battery set. I'm spending $1,000 a year on batteries. That's the reason people don't live off grid in a nutshell. Now, there are more kinds of batteries out there in the world than the lead acid batteries. Um, this is a clip of an article that was published in Permaculture Magazine in UK. There's their website. <coughs> Excuse me while I cough a minute and take a drink of water. <coughs> there you go. So that's a good magazine. <coughs> they did two articles on us, which and they were really well laid out. Um, I've read that magazine some. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic magazine. The second article they did about us, uh, they talked about our battery systems and they found a, a couple of experts to come in and, and weigh in with their opinions. And the experts have their opinions. That's all fine and good. And it, what I was amused about this, uh, so that's Rosa, my daughter, sitting in front of a daylight uh, drive uh, seed uh, drying fan. I think we had that in the previous presentation. But anyway, they put that picture in the magazine. But if you go over to the right side, the right column of uh, the text in that article, it says the knifey battery, nickel iron battery, was a great invention, but lithium iron phosphate, LIFEPO4, technology seems far better today. And I was like, okay, so you think your LIFEPO4 battery is better? I'm not a battery expert. Let's go see. So I go do start doing some research. What up? The next page. And this is Wikipedia, right? Uh, so, and there's a lot of information out there about LIFEPO4 uh, batteries, uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries. But here we are uh, cruising around Wikipedia and middle paragraph, last sentence, it says the LFP cells, that's the uh, lithium iron phosphate cells, must be balanced initially before the pack is assembled and a protection system also needs to be implemented to ensure that no cell can be discharged below a voltage of 2.5 volts or severe damage will occur in most instances. Okay, so your LIFEPO4 batteries are fine as long as you don't actually discharge them too far, at which point they destroy themselves. Hmm, that's interesting. Let's keep going. Um, so this is the Nickel Iron Battery Association. This is one of many websites devoted to nickel iron batteries. I think this one is basically a single individual who put this together, but it's, it's a well, he's got a lot of information on there. It's fun to read. Um, <clears throat> basic parameters on nickel iron batteries. Uh, let's go up there to time durability. Uh, that's like middle way in that list of uh, stuff up there at the top. Uh, 30 to 100 years, uh, that corresponds with my experience. We'll discuss, discuss that more in a little bit. It says repeated deep discharge does not reduce life significantly. Uh, that's under cycle durability. That corresponds with all the research I've read and also with my experience. So this is, this is what makes uh, nickel iron batteries unique. You can discharge them, put them on the shelf, come back 10 years later, 
pick them up, charge them up, and they're fine. Um, that no other battery is like that. Um, and uh, I mean, what happened with us at Living Energy Farm is we put in a small set of, of lead acid batteries in an inverter. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say at this point, but I wanted to get the house going here quickly. We, we built a good sized house and kitchen. It's a community scale facility. If you've ever ripped a sheet of plywood with a handsaw, it's like, yeah, don't ever do that again. So I wanted to have access to power tools. So we put that system in, and of course we blew up a couple of inverters, um, very cheap inverters and expensive inverters, and there's a huge price difference between those two. The cheap inverters will not support a lot of motors. In any case, within three years, the lights were going out. Just the lights in like our work, our, not the whole, we didn't have the whole house finished, just the kitchen by itself. It's got, uh, what, eight uh, DC LEDs, nine. I'm sitting here in the kitchen right now talking to you, actually. Um, we couldn't keep them on. They were going out. Uh, I'm like, God, this sucks. Uh, so we had already purchased a set of nickel irons. Uh, the smallest set I could get and the smallest that you can still easily get is $1,000, 100 amp hour set. Um, so I purchased those. It's like, wow, okay, well, that's a bite of money there, but let's get those. And, and 100 amp hours is tiny. That's like one-tenth of what people normally install. I said, well, that's an expensive experiment for us because it really is just an experiment. I don't know anything about nickel iron batteries. Um, and I thought, wow, they're way too small. But then when it got time to open the house, I started looking at, well, I should get at least a two or 300 amp hour set. And then I thought, and I had set these nickel iron uh, batteries up in a cabin we have in the back corner of the property. I just hooked them up on a PV panel, no charge controller, no electronics, just wired them straight up to the panels. And they worked fine for that. But that was a tiny little cabin. We weren't doing much with them back there. So we'd already had these batteries like four years by the time I moved them back to the main house. And I thought, you know, I really should just see what these 100 amp hour batteries are worth. So we put them in the main kitchen, which is connected to the house. We light up the whole kitchen. We light up the whole house. We get the final permit on the house. A bunch of people start hanging around. And of course, as soon as you get a bunch of people hanging around, they have a, a rainy day. And people just leave the lights on all day. And I'm thinking, you can't do that. The lights are going to go out. We have one single uh, PV panel feeding these nickel iron batteries. Uh, the one we have on there now is a 200 watt. Back then, I had a 160 watt panel feeding this 100 amp hour battery set. So I've got about a tenth as much power coming in, about a tenth as much uh, storage as most people have, give or take, and the lights didn't go out. I was like, I was scratching my head, and what is going on here? Uh, and the lights have never gone out since. Uh, we're into this project uh, going on eight years now, and people leave the lights on on rainy days. We went through two months in January and February, no sunshine, uh, hardly, and the lights were on just fine. So these nickel iron batteries have a remarkable discharge curve. They resist discharge with an amazing tenacity. They go down one decimal point at a time, uh, slowly resisting discharge. There was one point uh, when I went traveling for about a week and left a bunch of my bright-eyed, bushy-tailed friends hanging out at the farm here. And when I got home, sure enough, they left the lights on the whole week. They weren't caring. And one of them comes up to me and says, hey, the, the lights are starting to get a little dim. I look up and I'm like, yeah, they are. You left the battery, the lights on all week. And they're like, oh. So that's the other amazing thing about these nickel iron batteries is the discharge curve is steady even as you go down in voltage and you have plenty of time. The problem with normal off-grid systems is as soon as the voltage falls, most inverters cut out at 11.5 volts. Um, as soon as the inverter hits 11.5, it shuts off, bang, the lights go out, you're in trouble. Um, and then you gotta go out there in the cold and the sleet and the snow and try to start a stupid generator. Uh, so just from personal experience, all mathematical theoretical stuff aside, we have kept the lights on in our community for years now with a set with a, t a small set of nickel iron batteries, and I am com uh, utterly convinced and enthusiastic about these things. 
Let's read a little bit more of this website before we go on though. If these batteries are so great, uh, why does nobody have them? Why does nobody even know about them? When we had our charge controller, we have a modern uh, midnight solar charge controller. They're a good company as far as I can tell. It's like a modern state-of-the-art MPPT controller. Uh, it has a, a list in there of, of different kinds of batteries. You can uh, sit, tell the little computer in the controller how to, how to relate to your battery. Uh, nickel iron is not on the list. Uh, they have evaporated from the solar world completely. Um, so let's read this website. Uh, last uh, two, three sentences in that paragraph there in the middle. It says, the reason for uh, their, meaning the nickel iron batteries, disappearance in the North American market is largely due to the Exide Corporation's decision to abandon the technology in 1975 after purchasing it from the Edison Storage Battery Company for several million dollars. The reason for acquiring the manufacturing process to make knifey batteries and then simply abandoning the technology is unknown. Exide remains the second largest manufacturer of lead acid batteries in the world. By the way, that friend of mine who spent $3,300 on a set of lead acid batteries that only lasted three years, those were Exide batteries. Um, so there you go, Exide. Okay, computer, give me the next page. All right, uh, so uh, this is my daughter Rosa uh, with one of Edison's original stainless uh, nickel iron batteries. Uh, this battery, as far as we can tell, maybe it's 100 years old, it's, it's ancient. It doesn't have a manufacturing date on it. It was an old coal miner's lamp uh, and it still works. Uh, so there are lithium iron, lithium ion batteries, there are uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries, there are lead acid batteries. All of those batteries are damaged each time you cycle them. They are all badly damaged if they are deeply discharged. The bottom line is that no other battery technology has uh, the kind of durability, the long-term uh, usability of nickel iron. Nothing comes close as far as I can tell. Uh, whoop, next page. Now, back to this whole issue of amp hours, right? So when you go to the store and you say, I wanna buy a banana, a banana is a noun. It refers to a particular thing. If you ask for a banana, you expect to get a banana. Well, amp hour, it's a compound word, but you think it is a thing, it is a noun, but it's not. Um, basically, uh, amp hours don't mean anything. Uh, the way these batteries are rated, I don't know what the rating system is. I don't know if there's some, uh, what the process is, but I can tell you that the ratings on these batteries uh, it, it's complete misinformation. They bear no resemblance to the real world. But let's just look at it. So some batteries are rated by amp hours. Like if you go to Napa, that battery up in the left-hand corner is a Napa battery. That's a, a combined deep cycle uh, starter battery. Your batteries that you're using for uh, uh, solar storage are usually deep cycle batteries. Now that's a little deceptive because the deep cycle implies that you can deeply discharge them, but you cannot. If you deeply discharge a lead acid battery, you damage it badly. If you do that a few times, you destroy it. But that aside, this is like the cheapest, uh, uh, you know, sort of pseudo deep cycle battery you can get your hands on. And it's rated by reserve capacity. Uh, and it's rated 150 minute reserve capacity. Reserve capacity is a 25 amp discharge. So 150 minutes is uh, two and a half hours, uh, 25 amps at two and a half hours. Uh, means that this battery is rated at 62.5 amp hours. That's converting reserve capacity to amp hours. Uh, my local Napa here has it at $93.59. Uh, do all that math, and that works out to about a buck fifty per amp hour. That's pretty cheap. Uh, so we go on down. Uh, we look at the uh, batteries. This is the same picture we had earlier. Uh, the batteries listed at Northern Arizona Wind and Sun. Now these are true deep cycle batteries, probably a little better quality, maybe, or better adapted to solar use. 
so that first battery comes out at about 270 per amp hour. Oh, but then on the right side of the page, these are lithium ion batteries. Uh, oh, well, those are very different. Uh, quite a bit more expensive. A uh, thousand bucks for 100 amp hours. You're looking at $10.50 per amp hour. Now, well, that was a big jump in price, wasn't it? Um, and uh, again, none of those prices include shipping. Uh, so what's going on here? Oh, now there's the nickel iron set we have at Living Energy Farm. Uh, you can't quite tell it from the picture necessarily, but that's a 100 amp hour battery set, which, like I said, is very small. It's 12 volt, which is also very small. It's also about three feet wide and 200 pounds. Uh, this is one of the reasons that nickel irons are not as popular as they once were, is that they're big. Um, uh, they're, they're bulky. That's certainly true. Uh, the math on the nickel irons is pretty easy. It's about $1,000 per 100 amp hours, so $10 an amp hour. Oh, interestingly, if you go to Iron Edison, they are a distributor of nickel irons. And now they have the, uh, the lithium iron, iron phosphate batteries as well. Uh, their smallest set of lithium iron phosphate batteries is uh, $14,900. $14, Makes my uh, $1,000 nickel irons look cheap, don't it? Uh, so you do the math on those and you're at 931 uh, an amp hour. So, wow, those are expensive too. Uh, whoop. Yep, all right, let's keep going here. So there's our choices. Well, hey, come on computer, behave. Uh, so there's your choices. We just looked at some batteries where everything that was lead acid was like $1.50 to maybe $3 per amp hour. And then when you hit nickel iron, uh, lithium ion, or lithium iron phosphate, all of those batteries, those are all $10 an amp hour. And when you added up your worksheet back there, you remember all those watts? Well, that added up to a boatload of amp hours, right? Uh, except, and this, this, I didn't like search around to find some special uh, worksheet to, uh, to make fun of anybody. I mean, this is just the standard procedure. This is the, the standard procedure for designing off-grid systems. But wait a minute, they've got like waffle iron and microwave, popcorn popper, all this stuff on here. It's like, uh, do you really need all that? So if you look at the red stars on this sheet, uh, these are all the things that we do with daylight drive or daylight charging uh, at Living Energy Farm. So I didn't put red stars beside all the power tools because we've got about two dozen different shop tools. But yeah, we do our shop tools with daylight drive, no problem. Uh, refrigerator, freezer, yeah, that's daylight drive, no problem. Computer, we, my wife was looking over my shoulder as I was doing this. She said, you should go down and check. We got a CD player and a TV player and all that. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, so yeah, we have all the entertainment crap we want. Daylight drive, no problem. Daylight charge it. Uh, we've got manual automatic washing machine. I don't know what the difference between those is. But yeah, we got a manual washing machine. Daylight drive got on that too. Uh, furnace blower, uh, yep, daylight drive there too. Pulling heat off the roof. We talked about that last time. So we can wipe all the really vital stuff off of this sheet with our daylight drive system. Um, and then, okay, well, the blue stars up there, that stuff, you really shouldn't ought to be cooking food with solar electricity, right? Uh, if you're cooking food, you should be doing that with something that makes heat. Uh, so uh, the blue stars or stuff, don't do that with electricity. Do that with something that makes heat. So that gets us all the way down to nothing but lighting. And that's what we have at Living Energy Farm. And okay, our worksheet says 40 to 100 watts. Um, well, we don't have a 40 watt bulb on the property. The biggest bulb I have is nine watts. Most of our bulbs are three watts. I, went, I walked around the whole farm, found every light bulb I could find, tied into our nickel iron set. And we're talking, we have an eight bedroom uh, house that we put interns in. We have a separate kitchen. We have a shop. We got a fairly big size facility here. I added up every bulb on the property and I got 110 watts. And of course, nobody ever turns on every light in their old house and kitchen and shop all in the same time. So we're never actually using 110 watts, but that's what we have. 
So, uh, you know, this sheet that's supposed to represent the real world, basically what happened is people have gotten used to using electricity in a certain way, and they hand you this worksheet and say, okay, now you're gonna use solar electricity just like you use regular electricity, and you get led down this rabbit hole. Uh, well, I gotta have a ton of amp hours, and boy, those lead acids, well, they're a third or a quarter of the cost of any other battery, so you buy the lead acids. Well, that's a rabbit hole, it's a make-believe world. Uh, it's not the real world. In the real world, you have choices. Uh, now this is a little $10 uh, amp hour meter uh, that I picked off, off of eBay uh, and it sort of kind of almost works. Uh, and I said, all right, well, to heck with all that theory, let's hook up the little amp meter. Uh, and it, it measures amps, it measures volts, it measures watts, and it measures amp hours, uh, which is useful. Uh, so I took some batteries and these, I take care of my batteries, by the way. We are trying to get the farm off of, uh, off of uh, gasoline for running the tractors. But we earn our living as farmers, uh, apart from yakking on the internet occasionally. Uh, so most of our money, 80% of our money comes from growing seeds. That's what we do. I got to keep the tractors running. So we have several tractors. I have batteries in those tractors. But I know lead acid batteries, the way you keep them in good shape is you keep them fully charged. You don't leave them sitting around and let them discharge. So I put little tiny solar panels on my batteries. I, I, I want to get the best out of them I can. So the lead acid batteries I have on the farm are well-tended lead acid batteries. I put that little watt hour meter on them. I took them over to the shop, put some, hooked up some lamps to them. I said, we're gonna draw these things down. So battery number one, four-year-old lead acid battery, 130 minute rated reserve capacity. Uh, that gives you 55 amp hours. The actual drawdown to where the inverter turned off was 29.7 uh, amp hours, 54% of rated capacity at four years old. Second battery, uh, I won't bounce you through all the numbers. Look at those if you want to. 67% uh, of rated capacity at uh, year five. So you're looking at, you know, these batteries, 60, 70% after four or five years, that's all they got left. And they're, they're de declining quickly at that point. That's what you get with cheap batteries. Now with our nickel iron set, I was determined I was gonna have it figured out by the time of this presentation, I was gonna put that watt, watt hour meter on, on our nickel iron set and get a drawdown test. So I put it on there. The problem is you can't draw the dang things down. With the lead acid batteries, I could take them out to my shop. I only used one lamp. I hooked one lamp to the inverter, hooked it to the battery, and I knew that within eight or 12 hours, that battery would be dead, right? So for the nickel irons, I hooked up, uh, I walked around to the shop and the kitchen and everything, and I turned on every light I could find. I plugged in some other stuff, and I told everybody who's staying here, I said, don't turn anything off. I gotta try to draw these batteries down. Well, you know, it's like a day and a half later, the batteries are still well above 12 volts. They're kicking along. I'm well up over 50 amp hours, and that stupid little blue box reset itself back to zero. Why did it do that? I don't know. But that was a couple days ago. I can't draw these batteries down in two days. It's gonna take me a, a four or five or six days to draw them down. So I came to the presentation without an accurate mathematical reading of the amp hour capacity of my nickel iron set because I was not able to draw them down. Uh, so you'll have to just take my word for it. These things are difficult to discharge. They have the opposite problem, the lead acid batteries. And this is a seven year old set. There's no uh, decline in capacity as far as I can tell. Um, now, uh, but uh, what we're doing at Living Energy Farm, as far as I can tell, is unique. I'm not aware of anybody else doing it quite the way we're doing it. Uh, now, these pictures here, this is a magazine, I think it was actually published in that same uh, permaculture magazine in UK. Uh, this is uh, Earth Haven. Uh, I don't wanna pick on these folks. These are people we know, but nonetheless, uh, the reason I picked out this system, this is a solar system that they put in, a microgrid as they call it. Uh, we've started calling our system a microgrid. I think I'm gonna ditch that word because it, it's misleading. Uh, what we're doing is not what other people are doing. But in any case, 
This is the closest thing I could find to something that's set up with an intention similar to ours. And, and I looked at the number of people using their system and the number of people using our system and tried to tried to make it fair, you know, try to make it all work. But you get an idea of what's going on here. They put in a big solar rack, put in electricity and they strung it out. They've got a cluster of small houses that they strung this uh, power out to. Uh, and I got the numbers. The woman who wrote that article is a friend of mine. And I said, and she sent me the numbers. This is exactly what they spent. This is the how big the system is and all of this. Uh, and as far as I could tell, their system was serving they have a lot more transient people than we do. Uh, so it was a little hard to figure out exactly what was fair in terms of scaling. But I decided that they were serving twice as many people as we were. So I adjusted all the numbers for that, basically cut their system in half. Uh, so all the numbers here, whether or not they say per capita, it's actually cut in half as if their system were half as big as it is, because I think they're serving more people than we are. So that said, the comparison between these two systems is pretty stunning. Uh, I have acronyms here. Uh, LEF is, of course, Living Energy Farm, uh, conventional off-grid system. That's the system you were just looking at, at Hertaven. Um, and uh, it's a conventional system. It's lead-acid batteries, it's uh, PV panels, uh, inverters, so they're running AC power, uh, all the hardware and switches and all that stuff, you have to make that stuff work. Um, so uh, at Living Energy Farm, if you walk around the property and find every PV panel on the property, you've got, it's actually a little shy of 2,000 watts, but 2,000 watts is a nice round number. Uh, that system uh, that we were talking about, uh, 4,000 watts, again, that scale, their actual system's 8,000 watts. But to be fair, we're, gonna, we're scaling it at half rate. So 4,000 watts comparative. Uh, the upfront cost per capita, you look at how many people are living at Living Energy Farm, cost us, and this includes the batteries, the PV panels, the wires, the rack, everything, about $500 a person to build our system. Uh, their system, as far as I can tell, about $2,600 per person to build their system. So theirs is a bit more expensive. Uh, uh, generator backup power. At Living Energy Farm, we have no generator. Uh, our lights never go out. Uh, the heating system works great. Our shop tools work great. Our kitchen tools work great, and we don't have a generator. And that's a big difference. Uh, conventional off-grid systems have generators. Uh, I can't tell you how many, I've had a number of friends. Uh, I help them build their off-grid system. I did a bunch of this before I did Living Energy Farm. And not only, you know, one friend of mine, I think she spent $30,000, $40,000 on an off-grid system. Seven, eight thousand dollars in batteries at least, and of course, six, seven years later, the batteries are dead. She's, oh my God, I got to spend that much money on a whole new battery set. And then, of course, you know, you invite your friends over at Christmas. It's raining, it's sleeting, it's snowing outside, and the lights go out with no warning. Uh, and so you climb out there in these these little gas engines. You know, an automobile, a car has like a, there's a bunch of gizmos on there to make it run in cold weather. Well, these cheap little generators don't have all those gizmos. They do not like cold air. Most of them. So they can be a complete miserable pain in the butt. Um, and this is the reason people don't stick with off-grid. Uh, by the time you're out there in the rain and the sleet trying to get your generator running, and it has to be outdoors, of course, of course, because it's a gasoline generator, and the gas is old in it because you haven't started it in a few months. Uh, people curse these things. They get away from them. They hate them. Uh, anyway, total battery storage at Living Energy Farm, 100 amp hours. Uh, conventional off-grid system, 2,000 amp hours. Notice the huge difference in storage capacity. At Living Energy Farm, we've shifted our storage away from electricity to other forms of storage. It makes a huge difference. The reason it makes a difference is our annual battery degradation cost. I'm estimating about $25 a year. Uh, if I'm wrong by 100%, okay, $50 per year. You're not talking about a lot of money either way. Uh, their annual battery degradation cost on the, the, our um, comparative system, $1,500 to $2,000. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but that's pretty close, I'll promise you. That's a huge difference, uh, huge difference. 
uh, annual equipment degradation costs. So if you spend $20,000 on $10,000 on inverters and uh, charge controllers and all this stuff, because you've got so much bigger system. I mean, they've got so many more PV panels coming in and such a big battery uh, system. They have to have much bigger equipment, much heavier equipment. Most of that equipment's pretty durable, but it doesn't last forever. And heaven help you, if you have a lightning strike, it can really put you out of business. But even if you just be conservative and say, well, that stuff will last 30, 40 years, 30, 30 years on $30,000 worth of equipment is $1,000 a year. Um, so you're looking at a lot of cost in the hardware. Um, our hardware, I mean, $100 is an estimate, but it, it ain't much. It's cheaper, much cheaper hardware. Uh, and like I said, you can even run these nickel irons without a charge controller if you do it carefully. Elia, uh, support for 24-7 use of appliances. No, we don't do that. Now, that's a big difference. So if you want to, want to run a blow dryer at 10 p.m., 11 p.m., remember that last webinar? I might have been a little mean about it. I showed these uh, coal mines and uranium mines, and I said, is your vacuum cleaner worth uh, mountaintop removal. Mountaintop removal is where they destroy entire mountain ranges. They'll take down an entire mountain for six inches of coal. So you can't run a vacuum cleaner with our system. Is it worth blowing up a mountain to run a vacuum cleaner? Get a broom, right? Uh, so we don't pretend we're trying to support appliances 24-7, and we don't think it's appropriate to do so. So that's a big difference. Uh, LEF, now this is another huge difference. Firewood for space heating dependency, 5%. In other words, the way we have integrated our solar heat with our cheap solar collectors on the roof with our daylight drive, solar electric, uh, we've knocked away 95% uh, of our heating bill. Uh, I mean, heat with firewood when you live in the country, but firewood's not free. Uh, seven and a half billion people can't burn all the firewood they want willy-nilly. Uh, even if you live in the country and it's cheap to you, it's not a global solution. Firewood dependency on a conventional off-grid system is 100%. You're not displacing any of your heating bill. Uh, that, that by itself is a massive difference. The single biggest energy cost uh, for any home in a cold, in a temperate or cold climate is heating. I've got a friend of mine who lives in, in upstate uh, uh, Michigan. They, uh, her family flies to Taiwan and lives in Taiwan, not Taiwan, I'm sorry, Thailand, lives in Thailand for the winter because it's cheaper to fly to Thailand, rent a house in Thailand through the winter than they hate to pay the heating bill on their house, house in Michigan. Um, heating is a huge deal. Now, a lot of people in the country in rural areas burn a ton of firewood and they think they're slick but that, there's a massive amount of pollution connected with that firewood and the EPA has tried to regulate it. Uh, and it's a huge amount of energy. Uh, cordwood, firewood, hardwood has a tremendous BTU density. So it's, it's not uh, un universally, other people can't do that. Um, so uh, this is a big difference between our system and their size, their system. All right, uh, LEF refrigeration. Uh, yeah, we got a small one, a daylight drive refrigerator. I talked about that, Sundancer. Uh, we're just getting used to it. We've hooked up a different power supply to it. Runs fantastically well. We're going to have a cold beer party this summer. I don't drink cold beer. Um, I don't drink beer, that is. Uh, but we're going to bring everybody over and show them that we can uh, air condition our house and drink cold beer in the hottest day of summer, uh, all with solar and daylight drive. Uh, conventional off-grid system, refrigeration, yes. I assume they can have full-size refrigerators. They probably expend more money than we do on refrigerators because when you buy a full-size, high-efficiency refrigerator, that is an expensive system. Um, Living energy farm, air conditioning, yes. Whoa, another big deal. Now this, I don't wanna brag about too much because aqueous thermal absorption, <laughs> isn't that a funny term? Uh, we're just pumping the irrigation water through the house. Haven't actually gotten it fully operational yet, but uh, that's the plan. I'm pretending we already did it. Uh, not everybody can do that. Uh, so I'm not saying that that is not another one of those things that cannot be universally done, but 
you know, when you look at the resources around you with a little creative thinking, integrated village level energy system, hey, we get air conditioning uh, for the price of a little bit of pipe. Basically, it runs for free. A conventional off-grid system, air conditioning, no way, can't touch that. Uh, another big difference between these systems, LEF system failure mode, no system-wide failure. Every one of our systems, we got a bunch of different systems. We have one panel charging the fridge, we've got another panel charging the nickel iron batteries, we've got a bunch of panels running the uh, uh, our daylight drive system. Uh, any one of those systems could have a problem. They, they rarely do. I remember we had a PV panel, had a bad diode in it once. I had to replace a diode. And I can't think of any other times our systems have actually failed. But like if you, let's say you left the lights on all the time, the lights would start to dim very slowly. Uh, if you overtax the water system, we have plenty of water. I can take a hot shower 365 days a year. But if you started to use up too much water, the water pressure would start to fall. So we have slowly weakening systems. Uh, there is no such thing as a system failure. Uh, conventional off-grid system, system failure, immediate whole system collapse when batteries weaken. And there's two uses, two contexts of that word weaken. There's the weaken as in uh, what's happening immediately. It drops to 11.5 volts, the inverter turns off, everything's shut down, uh, bad day. And there's also the weaken that starts to happen around four or five years, six with these batteries where they just start to collapse. Either way, your system shuts down. It's like you're fat and happy, and then all of a sudden you're cold and in the dark. Uh, that's a big difference between these systems. LEF, support for smartphones, laptops, and internet. Yes, but limited to battery powered devices. We don't keep, uh, you know, we don't keep our internet connection, all this crap running 24 seven. We have modern high efficiency battery powered devices. And by the way, right now I am talking to you using solar electricity transmitted to the internet tower using a solar powered uh, internet, you know, a hotspot internet connection device. So my part of this uh, interaction is all solar power. Uh, COGS, support for smartphones, laptops, and internet, yes, 24-7, I would assume. Uh, here's another big one. I should put this one in bold. LEF, toxic impacts of consumable materials. Very low, non -to no toxic heavy metals. Uh, nickel iron batteries consist of nickel, iron, both non-toxic metals, and potassium hydroxide, which is another word for potash, uh, fertilizer. Uh, that stuff is a little bit uh, alkaline, caustic even, but it's not poison, you know? Uh, uh, COGS, conventional off-grid systems, toxic impact of consumable materials, high, extensive use of lead, reprocessed abroad. And by abroad, I mean outside of the United States. Uh, I read recently, I think it's true, that uh, there's not a single industrial lead smelting facility left in the U.S. This stuff is so toxic, we don't want to touch it. We send it, uh, we buy it from overseas. All of our car batteries go overseas where they are reprocessed so other people get poisoned so us rich Americans don't have to get poisoned. Uh, so there's major toxic impact from a conventional off-grid system. Uh, life expectancy, of course, system components, living energy farm, 40 years or more. I mean, we have a 100-year-old nickel iron battery set, but I'm going to say the batteries are lasting for 40 years. That's what all the numbers in this presentation are based on. Uh, life expectancy, of course, system components with a conventional off-grid system, five to seven years on the batteries, generator, ah, 10 years. I don't know. Those things wear out. Other components, 40 years or more, eh, something like that. Okay, now here's a big difference. Uh, living energy farm, non-electric energy storage, extensive. We have a lot of thermal storage, pressurized water storage. We store energy all over the place without using electricity or not trying to store electricity. A conventional off-grid system, non-electric storage, none. Uh, now here's another big difference, this last two paragraphs. Behavioral impact of system design. Uh, slowly weakening systems teach users to adapt their lifestyle to energy availability. Some tasks have to wait for a sunny day. Okay, now this is anathema. This is sacrilege. You can't do that. 
except we're doing it and we're quite happy. Uh, this is really a big deal in, in what makes our systems work so well. And in fact, we're doing uh, off-grid immersives now. Uh, you can come out and join us for a weekend if you want to. Uh, check our website if you want to see that. But anyway, we get a bunch of people come uh, storming out here on the weekend. And sure enough, Friday night, we kind of all got together. We had a big dinner. We're all talking. Somebody goes over there and turns on the sink and starts doing that thing where they're dumping five gallons of water to wrench off each spoon. And I don't even say anything. I just sit there twiddling my thumb saying, you know what? You're going to drain the water tank. And sure enough, that's what we do. So sometime late Friday night, we ran out of water. Everybody's me. You ran out of water. I'm saying, dude, uh, you washed the dishes under an open tap. Wash them in a bowl, in a pan. That's what we do. And you never run out of water. Uh, our, the water system in our kitchen is separate from the house. So even when these uh, dear friends of ours uh, run the water out in the kitchen, we got to kind of set up that way on purpose. We want them to run out of water so they can see what's happening. But anyway, you run out of water in the kitchen, you still get to go take a hot shower. Um, so the behavioral system impact of a conventional off-grid system is a little bit complex because the with a conventional AC grid, all your capital costs are at the power plant. Uh, there's no uh, no a penalty, no problem for wasting a ton of electricity. So that's what everybody does. The behavioral system design is to encourage waste with conventional AC grid. <clears throat> a conventional off-grid system is a little bit more complicated because you paid for those batteries. You know, if you spent $30,000 installing the system and you know it's a limited system, uh, so there's some incentive to conserve and some in incentive to conserve with the design of the system. You know, you are gonna spend $40,000 on your system and then the, the people at the solar company convinced you to get rid of the toaster so that knocked you down to 30,000. Uh, but that said, my experience with conventional off-grid systems is because they have AC receptacles and because the, of the behavioral relationship we have with AC receptacles, uh, people tend to plug in a bunch of junk. I was staying, this was a few years ago, uh, visiting a friend of mine who had an off-grid system and this is another one that I helped build and it's not an off-grid system anymore. They tied it back to the grid because it wasn't working. And uh, they had a guest room with some, uh, another uh, person who had been staying, a long-term guest, and I went in there and, and there was a, you know, a cell phone charger, two cell phone chargers, alarm clock, all this dumb stuff plugged into the receptacles. I'm like, good, good Lord, no wonder your system's not working. People plug in all this stuff and then walk away. Well, that's a big issue from a behavioral impact uh, standpoint. If you, it's like putting a bunch of whiskey on the shelf when there's a bunch of alcoholics around. What's going to happen? They're going to drink. You can't uh, make energy free and expect people to not waste it. So conventional off-grid systems do not encourage waste quite as vigorously as, as off-grid as a, a normal AC grid system. But in my experience, people do not use them judiciously. So, uh, uh, as you can tell from my presentation, I think our system design has worked really well. Um, I'm actually quite surprised and quite shocked. Um, I had assumed we'd be burning candles out here in the wintertime. We're determined to keep it cheap and simple. Uh, we are not using candles, uh, not unless somebody has a romantic date or something. Uh, the lights never go out. The whole thing is working great. Uh, now, uh, if you want to learn more about Edison batteries, uh, Edison's manufacturing process, all of his uh, patents, he had Get the exact number, 45, 48, something like that, dozen, several dozen patents. Those are all public information now. Uh, this uh, document you're looking at, Edison Steel Alkaline, is curious to use the word steel, uh, storage batteries. This describes his production process in detail. This is on the internet. You can download it. You can go through and read his production process. Uh, fun reading. Uh, this, uh, when you buy nickel iron batteries, this is still the document they give you. Uh, when does this thing date to? 190 something or other? Now, this is Edison's original How to Care for Nickel Iron Batteries. Um, it's fantastic reading. The amazing thing about it, uh, of course, this is back, you know, uh, more than 100, about 100 years ago, a little more. Uh, and back then, 
you know, if a capitalist could make three or 5% on their investment, they were really happy. Uh, they made machines that lasted a long time and everybody was happy about that. When you read the care instructions for these old nickel iron batteries, it's like, you need to dust the top off. You know, if you get some, uh, you need to take care of them. They're talking to you like you're gonna have a, you know, a fancy machine that, that your kids are gonna use. You know, they're, they're encouraging you to, to respect these batteries, to take care of them. And there's, there's nothing in there about like these batteries ever wearing out, they don't wear out. If you, what happens is uh, you get some contaminants building up in the electrolyte. So every 20 years, you're supposed to pour out the electrolyte. That's potassium hydroxide, it's dirt cheap. Uh, you mix up a new solution, pour it back in there, be careful, that stuff is caustic. Don't get it in your skin, don't get it in your eyes. But you rinse the things out every 20 years, okay? Uh, so it's very different than the modern disposable, uh, uh, modern approach to making disposable stuff. So what happened at Living Energy Farm? Uh, we have been trying to expand our project overseas. I hope we are going to do that. Uh, we ho hopefully have a project going now in Nicaragua, maybe a couple of other places that's ongoing. Uh, if you can be of some assistance to us, we're trying to figure out how to ship these nickel iron batteries around the world. Anybody got any brilliant ideas about how to do that? Uh, customs in Nicaragua, what's that like? I don't know, I can't figure it out. But in any case, so the idea of village-made nickel iron batteries has been around for a long time. There's been a number of research projects uh, that universities and other organizations have done to see if it's like, well, you know, they don't have lights in parts of Africa, Asia, South America. Uh, couldn't you set up little nickel iron production facilities in a, in a city or in a village and, and, and use these batteries for poor people? But the problem, of course, is poor people don't have money. So there's no, these things, there, it's an idea, but there's not enough market uh, moxie to get it going. And uh, things tend to get, uh, you know, the habits of, we of wealthy American Westerners uh, tend to become the habits of everybody else, you know? So our use of energy, the way we use energy, and even the way we do off-grid, uh, we've had some contacts with uh, NGOs, uh, nonprofit organizations in India, and they started getting into solar. And what do they do? They hire solar installation contractors who install conventional off-grid systems. And we just went through the list of, of problems and differences with the conventional off-grid system versus uh, the system we have at Living Energy Farm. So they put those systems in five, six, seven years, they're dead. And they say, oh, well, solar doesn't work. And they walk away from it. Uh, nickel iron batteries just got left behind. So the idea of homemade nickel irons has been around. Uh, this is a white paper from a guy named Walt Noon. We found him. He did a bunch of experiments. His white papers are online. But it's interesting because anytime somebody talks about batteries, they talk about plates. Lead acid batteries have plates. Other batteries have plates. Um, and the people who started doing work on homemade nickel irons all talked about plates. So we started making nickel irons at Living Energy Farm. This is a mason jar with homemade nickel iron batteries. Uh, that's nickel plate and iron plate wrapped around itself in a solution of potassium hydroxide mixed to the right, uh, you know, solubility, whatever. Uh, there's one of them from the top. Your electrolyte, electrolyte uh, your wires <laughs> are connected. One's connected to the nickel, one's connected to the iron. Uh, you put some electricity in there. You hook your batteries up and guess what? Uh, it works, but it doesn't work very well. Uh, these are really crummy batteries, uh, but we're learning. Uh, you know, at some point, there's a buddy of mine working with me on this project, and he's like, uh, he built these, he, he did more of the work than I did to build these batteries. And, you know, we got them all set up and we're really excited. We started charging them and discharging them and charging them and discharging them. They're just not working very well at all. I mean, they hold a charge, but they discharge really quickly. The amount of electricity they hold is pretty pitiful. I'm like, what are we doing wrong? Because we've been looking at like Walt Noon and these other people. It's like, you know what? Let's cut open a nickel iron battery. So uh, this is a Russian nickel iron battery. Heaven only knows when it was made. Uh, picked up a few of these on eBay. Uh, we washed them out, and, you know, put some new electrolyte in them just like you're supposed to. And well, they worked okay, as far as I could tell. I didn't do an empire test on them. Um, 
But it's like, you know what? We're going to sacrifice one of those. We're going to whack it open. Uh, so we whack it open. And uh, this is pretty surprising. That is the inside of a commercially manufactured Russian nickel iron battery. And you're looking at it. It has five plates. It is clearly not like super precision in terms of the, the manufacturing here. Those are little plastic dowels in between the plates. There are two uh, nickel plates and three iron plates. And the plates are not plates. They're screens. You can see that screening material. We actually cut the screens open. Uh, so it's, it's like a fine mesh screen. Inside the screen, there's this black gunky stuff. I'm like, what is all this black gunky stuff? Is this contaminant? Is this, what, what's this, what, what's going on here? Uh, so we do some more research. Uh, there's another shot. You can see that screen. You can see where we cut the screens off. You can see how these electrodes, that electrode ties to the iron and that electrode ties to the nickel plates. So here's what's going on. These nickel iron batteries do not have plates. Um, what they do, uh, there's a word centering where you take a, powdered metal and you heat it up to where it's almost melting and then you sort of compact the metal a little bit and it sticks together. That's one way to do it. The way these batteries are done is a super fine mesh screen and there's powder in there. Uh, basically ground up or, or powdered uh, fine granular nickel in some of the plates and fine granular iron in the other plates. And that's how these are made. It's like, oh, this is way better because uh, the, the, the way the electrochemistry of nickel iron batteries works, it's all about surface area. And our plates had pitiful surface area. These batteries have huge surface area because each one of those little particles, of course, has its own surface area. And we've got a bazillion particles. You've got a whole lot of surface area. So there you go. There's our nickel iron battery. So now we're on to phase two of making homemade nickel irons, which is to, to find fine mesh screen, to find pure nickel. That's the expensive part of nickel irons, by the way. Pure nickel is expensive stuff. Pure nickel, pure iron powder. See if we can get it all put together, see if we can make it work. And the iron plates, by the way, just ground out to the outside case of the, uh, of the battery itself. And it's the nickel plates that are uh, held electrically separate by these little electrical, plastic electrical divider things in there. Um, so uh, we're gonna try to make our own uh, nickel iron batteries. Hopefully with our new insights about uh, how this powder stuff works, we can do it. And hopefully we can take it a step further than all these people who have tried to, to set up uh, nickel iron production facilities around the world and have failed. Uh, that's a pretty ambitious project given the uh, human and financial resources we have. Uh, anybody out there want to help us make it work? Uh, I mean, the, the electrification rate in sub-Saharan Africa is 5%, below 5%. 5% is the high end. Uh, where we're going in Nicaragua is an area that has electricity, but it's really expensive and really poor. There's a lot of people around the world who have either crummy electricity or no electricity, good batteries. Uh, all the NGOs, all of these little health clinics and, and little schools that all of these nonprofit organizations build in the poorer parts of the world, they all put in these, these crummy batteries. Lead acid gel cells, a gel cell is simply a lead acid battery that has a, a gelling component in the, in the liquid in the battery. So if you slosh it around, it doesn't slosh. Uh, but they're still lead acid batteries. All of those batteries all over the world are dying. And of course it's lead and the people in some village uh, don't have a lead recycling facility. So they toss it out the back door, or toss it in the garden. Lead contamination around the world from lead acid batteries is, is a big issue. Um, of course, the kids get out there and play with it, whatever. Uh, nickel iron batteries can have the kind of mixture of nickel iron batteries and daylight drive uh, that we have at Living Energy Farm, I am convinced uh, could change the course of industrial civilization. I mean, maybe that's a little pretentious to say it that way, but it is a much better way of doing things. Um, <clears throat> so sources for nickel iron batteries, Qualmega is actually a direct portal to uh, Chang Hong. They're one of the big Chinese manufacturers. Uh, they do not keep like a bunch of batteries in stock. You can do big orders 
and it takes months for them to get here, but they're cheap. Uh, and you're direct, talking directly to the manufacturer. Iron Edison is a company, uh, they're a fine company, they're in it to make money. They don't seem to have any ideological uh, investment in anything other than, other than profit, but that's fine. That's what they're in the business to do. Uh, Bimble Solar, uh, as well as this uh, Iron Core in Australia, they both ship batteries worldwide. So even though they're not in the US, they will ship into the US. Uh, now it's funny because I've talked to a number of different nickel iron enthusiasts and there are a bunch of them out there. And everybody says, well, you know, uh, our batteries are better than those batteries. And like the iron core in Australia, they're, oh, those Chang Hong batteries, our batteries are better than Chang Hong batteries. It's like, I don't know, I got Chang Hong batteries and they seem to be just fine. So there you go, everybody thinks their own battery is the best. Um, so uh, that's about what I know about nickel iron batteries. Next week, stay tuned uh, for our next presentation. By then, I think I will have an actual amp hour reading on our nickel iron set. I did not succeed in doing that this week because I was not able to dis discharge the batteries. But by next week, I hope, I hope I will be able to do that. Now, for the grand finale, or to sh switch gears a bit, uh, uh, you know, daylight drive is really fantastic, right? But you got all these old AC power tools laying around. You got your old circular saws and your, your saws all and all these tools. It's like, man, you're going to throw all these things away? Well, a few years ago, a friend of mine uh, had told me, this is a machinist friend of mine who's helped out Living Energy Farm a tremendous amount. Now, these people who know about old machines, golly, what a lifesaver. Uh, he had told me, he said, ah, those batteries, they're not easy. Those motors and those old power tools. Now, we're not talking about the more modern cordless tools. We're talking about the old-fashioned, ordinary power tools that have uh, uh, a cord on them that you plug into the wall. And when you run the motor on that uh, power tool, you can see little sparks usually inside the motor in there. Uh, he said, you know, those motors are not AC motors. Uh, I said, really? Uh, so I did a bunch of research, uh, and he was right. Uh, they're what's called universal motors. Uh, a universal motor will run on AC or DC. Uh, so a couple of years ago, I thought, eh, let's try this. So I took one of our power saws and I plugged it straight into our 180 volt nominal uh, daylight drive power supply. And our 180 volt power supply actually runs 220, 230 on a sunny day. Well, slamming 230 volts into a motor that's made to run on 110, 120 is asking a lot. Well, that saw took off like a freight train uh, and it blew the switch right out of the saw. I said, yeah, okay, well, that was interesting. But the saw did spin. Well, so I haven't really needed portable tools much. Uh, we have our little portable battery tools. I've showed you all before how we tie those back into the nickel iron batteries, and that works great. But now we're doing more metalworking in the shop. I'm working on this uh, farm traction thing, trying to make tractors run on farm-grown fuel, and it involves cutting pieces of steel apart, putting them back together. And I can't cut this steel, man. It's too thick, it's too big, it's too heavy. I can't bring it over to the bandsaw. So I was getting frustrated. It's like, you know what? I'm going to see if I can make this power saw thing go. So I went back out to our 180 volt rack. It's uh, six uh, PV panels in series. Six times 30 is 180 volt. I said, you know what? That's, and that's eight amps because uh, your wattage stays the same. Uh, series, the voltage adds up. Uh, parallel, the uh, amperage adds up. Either way, the wattage stays the same. So I cut that rack in half to snip the wire and uh, made it into two 90 volt sets. So I got 90 volts at 16 amps, double the amperage. And I plug that into the saw and I put a heavy duty switch on there. You can see that duct taped onto the saw and that thing runs exactly like it was plugged into AC. So I've been out there slabbing up a quarter inch plate steel. Quarter inch plate steel is really heavy steel, by the way. Uh, and that saw runs just like an ordinary saw. And I am thrilled because now I have all these old power tools. I can just plug them right into the 90 volt. And there's a trick. I should have drew you a picture of this. Maybe I'll do it in the next uh, webinar. You can, if you know anything about switching, a double pole, double throw switch is simply, it's like two switches built into one that throw it anyway. I'll draw you a little picture. You can use a double pole, double throw switch to convert. 
But uh, for us to convert from 180 to 90 volt, to convert a system from parallel to series just with one switch, if you're setting up a, a system from scratch, the trick would be to just set it up at 90 volts. Uh, and then you could buy 90 volt brush motors like the run blowers and water pumps, uh, all this stuff that we're doing at Living Energy Farm. And then you could run all your old power tools straight off the 90 volt. Because a nominal 90 volt system, if you're using three panels, if you want more moxie, you do three and three. So you get, uh, you know, three in series in parallel with three more in series, if that makes sense. Uh, it works fantastically well. You get to use all your old power tools. Uh, now, uh, a couple of words of warning, DC does beat up switches. We have, we are, you need 20, 30 amp switches, big switches. Uh, DC just arcs, it's like an arc welder, tears up switches. And also some drills and whatnot have power, little circuits in them that adjust the speed of the drill. Some of that stuff might get a little weird with, with straight DC going through it, but try it if it's an old power tool. Uh, but I can tell you, we're really happy with ours. Uh, so there you go, there's an addendum, how to use power tools. Uh, with high voltage DC straight off the sunshine and, they sunshine, and they have just as much power as if you were running them at full voltage AC. Um, so that is the end of our presentation for today. Uh, Arib, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Yes, do we have any questions? Do we want to go ahead and start taking questions? All right, yeah, we have a bunch of questions here from the audience. So I'll start with, uh, here's one from, Robert, he says, have all the Edison storage battery company engineers passed away or might they still be um, able to inform informally advice about how to manufacture them again on a DIY or uh, external basis or experimental basis uh, that might make something useful that might also last, um, just saying, has anyone tried to make them or repair or is there a community of support, a good blog or forum um, about them? Thanks. Uh, well, there were several questions there. As far as the engineers, I don't know. You find me an old iron Edison engineer, an iron, uh, uh, nickel iron engineer, and I'll give you a hundred bucks. I would love to find one of those people. I mean, we're talking, they were shut down in the 70s, so they should still be around, some of them. Uh, I haven't pursued that. I had, the thought had gone through my head uh, more with the Russian batteries, because those were made more recently, I think, uh, to try to find a Russian uh, battery engineer. I have talked to, I have one friend who worked for a regular battery company, and he talked to me, but he didn't know anything about uh, iron, uh, nickel iron batteries in particular. But yeah, if we could find some old, some people who worked with these batteries, that would be absolutely fantastic. That would be golden. Now, as far as is there a community of people, uh, there is and there isn't. I'm not aware of a, a nickel iron uh, Yahoo list or anything like that. Maybe there is. I haven't looked particularly, but there are a bunch of people who are enthusiastic about them. Uh, they're the old Iron Edison, old the original nickel iron Edison batteries. People hold on to those uh, and they buy and sell them. They sell at a premium. They sell for quite a bit more than the Chang Hong, the modern Chinese batteries. Uh, so when you can find them, uh, people people grab them and they rinse them out and reuse them. There's there's thousands of those. Uh, people living off grid with nickel iron batteries uh, all over the country, all over the world, and people hold on to those things. Uh, they claim, and I don't know if it's true or not, that the original Edison batteries are better made than the modern Chinese batteries. I have no idea myself. Um, but uh, yeah, the people recondition those things and fix them up and use them. Uh, it, it's like old cars or old tractors. You know, here at Living Energy Farm, we've got all the tractors. The youngest tractor we have, I think is 40 years old. We had a 1939 out here and I got rid of it, which I deeply regret. You know, we got 50 year old machines. I've got a drill press. It's about 120 years old. 
some of these old machines are great. They run just fine. So that's true with the nickel iron batteries. People hang on to them. They fix them up. They help each other out. Yeah, sure. So there's people doing that. But if anybody out there knows of a, a, a nickel iron engineer, man, send them to me. I will, I will happily, I would, I would be very happy to see that happen. Right. A Google search might help to find a community or forum, blog, whatever. You know, you might. Yeah, I haven't tried it. It could be out there. That's an, I'll try that. I mean, any, any of you could try that. Right. All right. So here's another question. If you are done with that answer, can I? Uh, I'll move on. Yeah, to the, all right. Okay. So here's a question from Alicia. Uh, she says, "So what is your recommendation for off-grid batteries?" Uh, my recommendation is to number one, arrange your energy system so that you need a minimum of electrical storage, uh, which is what we've done at Living Energy Farm. You know, use a DC pump so you're not trying to run your pump your well pump off the batteries, use a daylight drive refrigerator. You know, if you're gonna have heating blowers and all of that, set it up daylight drive. If you have a farm, you can set up like we're doing, you know, grain grinding, grain processing, firewood cutting, you can do all that daylight drive. So you bring your energy demand down really low. Uh, and then the, we have a 100 amp hour battery set that we bought from Iron Edison. Uh, they work great. Uh, if you're just trying to do lighting and maybe, uh, charge a few laptops and that kind of things. 100 amp hours is plenty in nickel irons. As far as I can tell, the performance of nickel irons is maybe five to one, at least three to one compared to lead acid. So a 100 amp hour set for most uses, uh, household uses would be plenty. It's a thousand bucks uh, and you will need a source of distilled water, which is pretty cheap. Uh, but if you can remember to put distilled water in, water in them once every four to six weeks, that's the only maintenance you do and your kids will inherit them. They'll last forever. So um, I'll move to the next question. Here's a question from Jeffrey. Um, what are you referring to? Uh, uh, what What are you referring to with the term daylight drive? Ah, well, that was the previous webinar. What daylight drive refers to is that we run uh, motors, most of them high voltage, but also some low voltage. Uh, where you take the, the DC electricity coming straight off the, uh, the photovoltaic panels, the PV panels, and you take it straight into an industrial brush motor. So what we have at Living Energy Farm are six panels in series, photovoltaic panels. Uh, so we take that wire and we, it goes through a switch naturally uh, into a DC motor, and then we run that motor when the sun's out. Uh, so we grind our grain, we heat the buildings, we, do, we pump the water, we do all that when the sun's out. And like with the heating blowers, I'm sitting in our kitchen right now listening to our heating blower go. The sun, when the sun comes up in the morning, the motor starts to turn slowly. As the sun gets more powerful, the motor comes up to full speed. As the sun goes down, the motor slows down and quits. Uh, DC motors, brush motors in particular, brushless are a little complicated. Most, most brushless motors will run with a variable input, not all of them, uh, but brush motors certainly, they run just fine with, with uh, variable input. So daylight drive refers to running DC motors uh, with the electricity coming straight off the PV panels to run the motor. So we're not trying to store electricity. We're trying to do the work during the daytime. So if I need to cut firewood, I'm not gonna cut firewood 10 o'clock at night. I'm gonna cut firewood during the day. Why would you cut firewood at night anyway? We grind our grain during the day. We heat the buildings during the day and then we have heat storage to get through the night. All of these motors, sun comes up, motor runs, sun goes down, motors quit. Naturally you have a switch on each motor but you can grossly overload the system. We have a one and a half horsepower uh, power supply. We can run two horsepower, three horsepower. Uh, the motors speed up, slow down. There are some caveats. Uh, 
DC power is harder on switches. You have to use heavier switch gear. Uh, and you also want to be, there's a difference between motors that are uh, spinning freely, like a blower motor that's heating the house. As the motor slows down, there's not a lot of resistance, so you don't have to worry about it. But like I have a compressor out in the shop and the compressor is pushing against the heavy load. You want to make sure you've got a minimally adequate power supply or else you start to, to melt things, basically. The switches, you start to overheat things. Uh, so motors pushing against a heavy load, you got to be a little careful about overloading your system. And we have fuses and whatnot and breakers in the daylight drive system, um, but none of that equipment's made to compensate for, for fluctuating voltage. So you got to have a little bit of brains about this. You can't be completely stupid about how you set it up. But that said, it works fantastically well. It's super simple, super cheap, super easy. The last webinar that we just did was all about daylight drive, if you want to go back and look at that one. Last week's webinar is still up um, for, for uh, review or replay. Uh, for those of you who are free members, you, know, you get a week of free um, webinar replays. And the elite and pro members, you get any time you want, So if, as long as you're a member. So um, I see a bunch of compliments. Alicia says, thank you. Keep up the good work. A uh, bunch of people want to get in touch with you. So I have the email address um, in the chat. So if you want to contact Alexis, um, feel free to write to him. I'm, I'm sure that he wouldn't mind um, you know, people uh, writing to him. Or you can download the uh, handout. We have a couple of PDFs that you can download. Uh, one from last week and one from this week are still here. So feel free to click and um, expand the handout section and click on the PDF files and they will they will save on your device. Um, if you're on if, if you're using a computer, uh, they will save onto your um, computer. So anyway, um, not seeing any other questions. I see a bunch of people uh, saying thank you. Um, Okay, so uh, here's, I think, one more question, maybe from Robert. Uh, okay, let me see. So he says, uh, thanks for the, the views um, of the battery inside construction of nickel, um, a controlled substance, controlled substance in some way. Is it hard to obtain? So he's talking about, um, the construction of the battery. Can you um, explain a little bit how, I mean, he, he's asking, is, is the substance hard to obtain? Uh, uh, the short answer is I don't know. Um, uh, I don't think nickel and iron are not hard to get, but getting them in precisely the right form that you want them, I'm not sure. We just, we're in the process of working this out ourselves. So, I mean, I, I could, uh, the short answer is I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think it's super hard to get, but getting it like the right particulate size at a reasonable cost, I don't know. We, we've, we've just been working on that ourselves. If you figure that out, let me know. We're trying to figure that out too. All right. Yep, so thanks everybody. Uh, I see that a bunch of you have uh, comments and uh, Alicia has some long comments, um, some um, links to websites so people can check out some things some of the resources, so that's great. Uh, John has several comments also, so you get all these uh, as downloads. When, when I post the uh, video on, on our website, you can download all the questions and you'll get the answers. So I think um, that's it for Q&As and we'll 
let Alexis go, and we'll start with our webinar highlights uh, of the week. So thanks, uh, everybody. Thank you, Alexis. If you have anything else, uh, we'll end on that. So uh, go ahead and end this for us. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.